Chapter 10 A Dance of Many Part 1 The thing that confuses most conventional historians about the period of the dark is that they assume that they must only be one story that encapsulates the entire period, much like the rivalries of Urza and Mishra dominated the times of the antiquities. Instead, it was a gathering of multiple threads and varied individuals, church and goblin lord, and crusader and mage. There were those seeking to return to the glory of the age of the brothers, those seeking to crush out the light of magic, and those who cared not one way or the other. Only when these varied threads intertwined with each other did we get a full view of the tapestry of that dark time. Arcal, Argivian Scholar Seema stood on the beach, looking at the remains of the fire pit. It had rained hard the night before, and the pit had turned into a shallow pond, bits of charred wood floating on its surface. Already, sand fleas were burrowing along its ash-strewn bottom, and crabs scuttled around its perimeter. Bosca's mirror had led her here, but led her no farther. The merfolk had called off the attack as soon as they emptied the hull from below. In the teeth of the storm, the captain, elven mate, and surviving crew had taken to the ship's small boats, and she stood on the prow of one such vessel as the storm washed over the quarterdeck and the shattered mast disappeared beneath the waves. It had taken two more days to reach safe harbor. An enchantment on the mirror, so recently in Joda's possession, assured her that he was still alive. A second enchantment, more obscure and draining to cast, led her to this beach. But here, the trail stopped. Seema knew that Joda had spent some time here, at least a night. But where he went afterward, the enchantment had left maddeningly unclear. She sat by the shallow pool and watched her reflection first in the water, then in the mirror itself. A heart-shaped face crowned with thick, black bangs stared back her accusingly. She stood up and paced around the pool. Then, she looked down again, but the same accusing face stared back. She could abandon him, she knew, to whatever fate had claimed him. There were enough mages lost every day, to stupidity, to fear, to the church. She would not be the first adept to have returned to the hidden city of magic with empty hands and a mournful story. But she had told him truly that he was a quick learner, and she hoped that he would come back with her to the City of Shadows, to help her and the other mages push back the boundaries of magic just one inch farther. If he could just control his temper and just learn to concentrate, she thought, he would have been a capable wizard. Now he was gone, and all she had was the mirror. At least she had the mirror. Joda could have saved himself from the storm, she thought at the time. And if the spells she cast were accurate, he had indeed saved himself. The mirror, however, the mirror he had foolishly taken from its secure pocket, would have been washed overboard and lost if not for Seema's intervention. If only he had not pulled it from its boot. Her soft mouth hardened at the thought, and she stamped a foot in the sand. For all his potential, the youth was still a fool. There was another spell she could cast now, the most powerful of the three divinations she knew, but she was loath to unleash its power or to pay the price it demanded on the mage who cast it. She could return with the mirror to the City of Shadows. She could tell the tale of Joda and Bosca and the church and leave it at that. They would have the mirror and the regrets of one mage who died and another who was lost. But then, she thought, she would never truly know what had become of him, would she? Seema sat again at the edge of the pool and gathered her thoughts. She thought of the fishing village that was her home of the islanders in the wide gunnel boats, heavily laden with nets. She thought of the islands and reefs that she had sailed to as a lass. She thought of her mother's boat, of the days spent helping to fix the netting. 
She thought of the time she set out the long lines tied with clay pots that were used to snare octopi. She thought of the islands of her youth. She thought of one island in particular, one with beaches of the darkest volcanic sand. They had beached the craft in the face of the mountain clouds from the east that never quite manifested into a full-blown storm and spent the evening around a bonfire serving up the fresh catch with berries found inland. Several of her mother's sisters had beached their down boats with them. One aunt had a small shell ocarina, while another always brought a bit of rum with her when they went to sea. By the end of the evening, they were all singing and dancing, the sand beneath them as dark as the starless sky above, suspended between the heavens and the sea. She thought of that island and inhaled, and could almost hear the crackle of the fire and her aunt's piping music, and smell the smoky scent of the roasting fish and pungent tang of the rum, for that was the first time mother had let her try any that mother knew of anyway. She nodded and thought of the other islands of her youth, more quickly and mechanically, as a maid should. She pulled the manna from those memories, and from the memory of that night on the black sand, and she poured it into the shallow pool of ash-strewn seawater. As she poured the memories out, the magic of the evening of the black sand poured with her into the pool. She could feel it pull away from her mind, like an octopus releasing its grip. Seema shaped the energy into a small, tight blue ball and asked the ball one question. Where is Joda now? The pond was murky for a moment. Then it rippled and distorted, opening a window into another part of the world. It was overcast, wherever Joda was. But most of the inlands were overcast these days. Dark mountains loomed up on all sides, and in the distance, there was a large citadel, or monastery of some type, hunched on the shoulders of one of the larger peaks. The vision cleared, and Sima was suddenly swooping along those peaks. She thought she might be looking through the eyes of a bird, and indeed there was a flutter of black wings at the corners of the pool at the edge of her vision. She neared the dark monastery. Ornate iron turrets and glass windows dotted the monastery. No, Sima realized. It once had been a monastery. Others had expanded upon it, adding towers and flame battlements where none had been needed before. The former monastery was now a sprawling mass of linked buildings dotted with balconies and parapets slowly moving down the shoulder of the mountain to a cold gray sea. Her heart sank as she realized what she was looking at, and she hoped the spell had somehow misfired and showed her a false vision, but this was not the way the spell worked. The crow vision wheeled over one of the parapets and showed two men standing on the exposed stonework near a railing carp in the shape of black lions. One, a stocky man in simple dress, was motioning toward the surrounding countryside. The other was younger and thinner, dressed in a rough brown robe like a monk, and had a beard that was just starting to darken fully. The crow must have cried, but the bearded face looked up. The younger man was Joda. Sima leaned back from the pool, and the vision faded, the window into the other realm, returning to mere water and chunks of burnt wood. She sat back on her haunches and shook her head. The conclave. Joda had fallen into the hands of the conclave. Their citadel was impossibly far to the north, she knew, and built on the wreckage of an old monastery that was ancient before the brothers' battle. They were the dark side of her city, the lair of dangerous wizards, and magic run amok. Joda was in the midst of it. Seema rose and looked to the north. She remembered from the tales of her mentors and from the old maps where the conclave was supposed to be. It was horribly far, she remembered, even with the help of magic. She had no idea how Joda had gotten there, nor how she would reach it herself, but she remembered that she had made a promise to bring Joda to her city. That promise now drove her northward. She remembered the maps, she remembered the tales, and she remembered the warnings. 
she remembered her promise to Joda. The only thing she could not remember now was the evening on the black sands of that island in her youth. She sacrificed that memory to power the spell. A lone tear ran down the side of her face, and she looked northward, though she could not tell anyone why. We've got a lot of crows, said Barl, as the black raven spiraled above them. All manner of scavengers, ravens, raptors, and even the occasional vulture. There seem to be more than any these dark days. Indeed, if anything, they've been getting larger over the years. I saw one recently, a hawk, that was bigger than you are. Joda nodded. His grandmother had spoken of warm summers as a girl, and now there was snow in the uplands of Giva province, even in high summer. The world was indeed changing, and not for the better. After the initiation challenge, they had provided him with a set of dark brown robes, like that of a religious monk, to cover his tattered, sweat and salt stained clothing. Now, in the high tower of the citadel, the wind still cut its way beneath the folds, and he shivered. It smelled like snow, and Joda thought they must be fairly far north indeed. Barl was dressed as he was always dressed, in a simple shirt and slacks. He seemed unfazed by the chill weather. This was once a site of a holy order, now forgotten, said Barl. Its practitioners died out, or were killed, or abandoned the place during the Brothers' War, or shortly thereafter. The Lord High Mage's mentor found this place, and deemed it to be as suitable as any found in his council house, his refectory, his hiding place for the conclave. Barl motioned to the mountains. It was midday, and Joda saw that the dark pieces were topped with snow. The peak, whose shoulder carried the former monastery, was the runt of the litter, and the mountains became higher and more imposing as they marched south, their peaks finally piercing the cloud cover and becoming lost to view. Barl pointed directly ahead. To the south and east, the mountains, the sentinels of the Sardian range. Here is the cavern of safe haven. Carry those who know their secrets across the land. Barl raised an eyebrow at the youth. But you already know that, I suppose. He turned slightly to the left, to a grayish blotch, to the northeast at the foot of those mountains. The Tanglewoods, he said. Not as impressive as the Scarwoods, or the Savin Expanses, but still a deadly place of man-eating vines and carnivorous plants. He turned to the north and pointed to where the woods ended. Much of this expanse was rolling hills, bare save for brownish grass. To the north, plains, said Barl. Open lands that are dominated by savage horsemen and superstitious townsfolk. They are lesser beings without magic. We don't worry about them overmuch. He pointed west, and still a bit north, back to the tower itself. On the other side of the citadel, we have an ocean. A wide bay that was once dotted with islands. But as time has passed, the level of the sea has dropped, and the islands have joined into larger masses and shallow flats. Blue is not a popular color among the mages here, and that is one reason. He finally pointed to the south and west, and said, Where the sea met the land, there were farms and orchards but now there is only marsh and bog. It's a damp, fetid place, neither entirely of the land nor of the sea. Some believe there are banshees, undead, and other spirits lurking out there. He turned to fully face the younger man. Do you understand what I just said? Joda nodded. And tell me, what did I just say? Joda pointed to each of the directions, following the same order Barl had just done. Mountains, forest, plains, Islands and swamp. Red, 
green, white, blue, and black. The lands of magic. The colors of magic. Barl smiled in satisfaction, and Joda asked, What color is your magic, friend Barl? The smile faded only a trace. I have no magic, and no magic as you understand it. My magic is of things, of artifice, and of gears. I study forces in play, and weights reacting against each other, and items dropping from a great height. And because I do not work with your type of magic, I am freed from its requirements and dangers. I serve as Lord Mayrsel's firm right hand. He trusts me, and I make things happen for him. Including teaching the new students, friend Barl, said Joda. The smile regained its brightness. No, we have no official teachers here. If you want to learn magic, you must go out and learn. Come, we should go down now. The stocky man led the way back into the tower and down a lengthy spiral staircase. They came out two floors above the main hall. Joda was perplexed by the architecture and the way the rooms were related to each other within the sprawling complex. They paused out in front of a set of double doors. Behind it, there was the sound of music and laughter. Barl turned to Joda and said, You know what will happen? Joda took a deep breath and nodded. The stocky artificer grasped the golden door handles and twisted. Both halves of the door swung inward and he entered, Joda in his wake. The room was a riot of color and noise. There were revelers in all manners of costume, rich vests and velvet capes for the men, wide silk shirts for some of the women, clinging gowns for others. There were numerous masks and several faces that Joda hoped were masked. The walls were brilliant white and were hung with golden draperies, showing dragons and knights battling. The simple brown robes, covering water-stained and ripped clothing, Joda felt like a beggar who had somehow stumbled into a royal ball. There were no musicians but the music stopped as soon as Barl entered the room. A ripple of silence began at the door and worked its way outward, Joda and Barl at its center. As the circle of silence expanded, the various partygoers quieted, small conversations stopped, or in some cases were finished off with a few whispered words. Everyone was staring at him. He straightened, refusing to be cowed by such a large gathering. A voice behind him, rich and strong, said, Now that we have your attention, we can begin. Joda nearly jumped at the sound of the voice. It was not Barl's, but was instead more fluid, more practiced, and elegant. He was about to turn, but the speaker moved forward. Joda had been positive that no one was behind them when they entered the room. Barl stepped aside to let the speaker pass. The figure was tall and powerful, dressed in black shirt and slacks, with a golden capelet hanging halfway down his back. He held a walking stick of dark russet wood, with the polished head of a carved skull on the end but he showed no need of it. The figure wore a giant ruby ring on his right hand. This was the figure in the portrait from the hallway. We have a new arrival, said the tall figure, addressing the crowd. One who has shown the talent and passed the initiation and wishes to be admitted into our brotherhood of equals. What is the name of this new brother? Barl nodded at Joda, and the young man said, Joda. His voice cracked as he said it. Louder, lad, said the smiling figure. I don't think everyone heard you. I am Joda, said Joda, feeling as he was shouting it, then adding, Of Giva province. One of the two women in the crowd smiled at Joda's northern accent, but the tall figure took no notice of it. Are you willing to become part of our conclave, Joda? Yes. Joda tried to look in the taller man's eyes as he said it, 
but the speaker was too fast for him and was back scanning the crowd even as he spoke. Do you promise to devote your energies to uncovering the secrets of magic, as we here have done? said the speaker. Yes. And do you promise to aid your fellow mages and treat each one as a friend? Yes. Has the candidate passed his challenge? said the tall speaker. He has, said Barl, in a clear, calm voice. Does anyone here know why this candidate should not be admitted? There was a heartbeat of silence, no longer than a short intake of breath. The flamboyant speaker smiled again. Then, with the power of the Lord High Mage of the Conclave, of the first among equals of the Council, and holder of the vision of a world free for magic, I, Lord Mersel, induct you into our ranks, Candidate Joda. Please step forward. Joda took a step forward toward the taller man. Marisol raised a finger, and a single spark danced on the fingertip. Do not fear, he said, in the casual manner of a barber or dentist. This will not hurt. Joda nodded. Barl had mentioned this part of the initiation to him. Marisol's enchantment would protect him from detection and keep the secret of the Conclave of Mages a secret. Marisol touched Joda's forehead with a sparkling finger. The spark disappeared, and Joda felt almost as if it passed within him, nestling at the base of his brain. Welcome to our council, friend Joda, said Marisol. To the crowd, he said, Friend Joda will be assigned to the library initially. Joda looked past the tall mage and at a crowd for the first time. Some looked simply bored. Others looked mildly amused. One or two shot venomous glances at Joda, and one of those darkened further at the mention of the library. Welcome to your new home said the taller man, striking Joda on the back with an open palm, just hard enough to stagger him forward. Joda turned to thank him, but Marisol's back was already to him, and the taller mage was towering over the smaller artificer in some private conference. Neither took notice of him. He was abandoned to the crowd. You are friend Giva then, said a white-haired young woman, pressing a narrow glass into Joda's hand as he turned back toward the room. The glass was filled with something cold and bubbling that smelled of strawberries. I am Joda. I am from Giva province. Yes, he said, grasping the wine with both hands, as the other option was to let it splash down the front of his robes. Ah, said the woman, with a slight bow. Friend Joda from Giva, then. You have powerful wizards in Giva? The white-haired woman's eyes were extremely wide and blue, and seemed to suck Joda in. Her accent was strange and wilting. Um, I don't know, said Joda. I mean, wizards are not horribly common there, or always welcome. He ran out of things to say, and took a large hard pull on the narrow glass. The woman's eyes brightened as he drank. His throat caught fire, and Joda immediately doubled over, coughing. His eyes watered from the strawberry-flavored incendiary, and he fought the twin urges to flee the room and to collapse entirely. Through teary eyes, he looked around to see if he had made a scene. No one was looking at him, not even the white-haired woman who had moved on to another victim, pushing another narrow drink into the hands of a small man with an ornately long beard. Barl was at his side and said, You have had a long day. Perhaps you should get some rest. Joda knuckled back the tears in his eye and looked at the bubbly concoction. Perhaps I should put in the liquid inferno on a sideboard and hoping that no one else would mistake it for a real drink. He added, The Lord High Mage, is he still... Marisol has little time or interest for social events, though he attends them when his schedule permits.
said Barl. Let me guide you to your quarters. Joda scanned the room for the tall mage in black and gold, but he was gone from the party. Joda nodded, looked at the volatile drink one last time, and already felt his stomach rumble in rebellion. To Barl, he said, Perhaps you better take me to my quarters. And then, Joda was gone from the party as well. What do you mean, gone? snarled Primata Delphine. The miracle worker looked helplessly, with unseeing eyes at the large priestess, from across the sacrificial altar. I thought I had a fix on the sinner's position, your grace, but he suddenly vanished. The slender woman in green robes raised her hands, each extending its fingers as she did so. She said, Poof! Was that poof as in he died suddenly in Nestle? said Delphine. Or poof as he detected your miracle and raised hell-spawn magical defenses against it? Sister Betsy raised her shoulders in a shrug and raised her hands again, fingers played. Just poof, and he was gone. The Primata looked across the brazier, wishing she could look into the miracle worker's face fully. Miracle workers of Order of St. Nanta wore red scarves across their eyes, and it was widely known, saw truly, without truly needing to see. The Primata had heard they accepted voluntary blindness in their order, and had the eyes gouged out, and the sockets filled with hot gold, but she never wanted to ask. The varied practices of other orders within the Church of Tao interested her not in the least. She had waited a week for one of the Order of St. Nansa to arrive, and another three days afterward for the altar to be purified, and the sacrifice, a white lamb without blemish or scar, to be sanctified, slain, and at last burned. Now, the supposed miracle worker told her that suddenly, her quarry no longer existed. Poof, said Sister Betsy, once more for effect. The Primata rubbed her temples with her fingertips, then said, Try to find the other one, then. Excuse me? said the sister. The other one, said Delphine. The woman he escaped with. The one he trapped in the first place. Find her. The sister was silent for a moment. That may take some time, she said at last. Time? snarled Delphine. What kind of time do you need? Ideally, said the blind sister. We should begin again. Reconsecrate the altar. Gather new woods and herbs. Select a new lamb without blemish or scar. You have all that here, thundered Delphine. We've done all that. Look for the woman instead. The heavenly hosts are not to be ordered round casually, said Sister Betsy. Fire in her voice. The heavenly hosts stiffed you on your first request, said Delphine, her voice dripping with irony. See if you can get them to pay off in an alternate sinner. Sister Betsy's shoulders stiffened, and her mouth became a thin line. Don't blaspheme. The hosts are not merchants, to be haggled and bartered with one's whim. A messenger arrived at the doorway of the shrine and waited nervously. Primata Delphine took a deep breath, then let it out. Of course, she said to the blind woman sweetly. Approach the heavenly host in the manner you think best, and see if, in their bounty, they will grant you a vision of the woman in question. But do it now, before your sacrifice is a pile of cinders. With that, the Primata Delphine spun on her massive heel and stomped out out of the shrine, leaving the blind priestess chanting lowly over the smoking lamb. Delphine almost ran over the messenger, a young man who leaped to get out of the way. She wheeled on the messenger. What is your desire, my child? The boy bowed low. Your grace, the Lord Guardian will see you now. 
The Primata stifled an unladylike and untile-like curse, nodded, and motioned for the boy to lead her to the Lord Guardian's presence. As they walked through the high-vaulted passageways of the temple, Primata Delphine mentally composed herself, reeling in those large portions of temper and harsh words that she had so willingly dealt out moments before. The boy opened one half of a great set of double doors, and Primata Delphine paused for a moment, straightened her robes, tucked a bit of straight hair behind her cowl, and entered the reception chamber. The chamber consisted of a short hallway, ending in a stepped circular dais. At the foot of the dais was a desk of white painted wood where a stenographer sat, his head down, his quill pen at the ready. Atop the dais was a high-backed throne of red velvet, trimmed with gold, and seated upon the throne was the Lord Guardian, the highest-ranking official in this part of Tarissier. As custom demanded, Primata Delphine paused three times as she walked down the red plush carpet leading to the dais. Each time, she placed her forehead against the floor in obscience, and each time, she struggled to get back up again on her feet. Finally, on the bottommost step of the dais, she knelt. The Lord Guardian was a fat, balding little man. However, within the Church of Tao, to say he was fat was pejorative and as such heresy, and to say he was balding would imply that he was aged and infirm, and as such was heresy, and to say he was little would be to diminish the entire church, and as such was heresy. Primata Delphine thought none of these things, but did wonder if his lordship was sleeping, for his eyes were closed. The eyes did not flicker open, but the Lord Guardian spoke clearly. You seek a boon, my daughter. I do, your lordship, she responded. Of late, our most holy lands have been plagued by... She paused for effect. Sorcerers. Many lands are, said the Lord Guardian. They are of the vermin of these cold and dying times. How are you particularly plagued, my daughter? Lord Guardian, I have been relentless in my pursuit of those that use foul sorcery, said the Primata, almost bound to touch the floor with her forehead, and have proved both worthy and effective in my pursuit of sorcerers, wizards, other hellspawn spellcasters, yet two have eluded me, and I seek permission to seek them out and punish them, and the blessing of the church to aid me. Why do you seek these particular two? said the Lord Guardian, not moving except for his lips. Will not the wisdom of Tao and the heavenly host, not to mention the foul forces these wizards themselves serve, eventually bring about their destruction? Lord Guardian, this pair of sorcerers blinded me and my fellow priests, defeated my loyal warriors, and stole my horse. They burned me, so that our heroes had to labor mightily to salve my wounds and restore me to health. As she spoke, she could feel the heat rising in her face. The Lord Guardian could apparently feel it as well. Anger is a sin, Primata. Remember that. Delphine nodded, chastised. They are the only two that have escaped the judgment of the church under my watch. They are a smudge on my otherwise perfect record. Pride is a sin as well, said the Lord Guardian, not opening his eyes. The Primata took a deep breath, then said, My Lord Guardian, I fear that these two adepts may seek out other sorcerers and pass on their knowledge to them, so these other sorcerers will be emboldened to attack the church as well. There was a long pause, and for a moment, Delphine feared that the Lord Guardian, Lion of the Church, had fallen asleep or been finally taken to a spiritual reward. Then, just as she was forming a new question, he said, 
You have our permission, child. Her document will be drawn indicating that all good churchmen and churchwomen should lend you what aid you demand in order to allow you to bring this pair to justice. The Primata Delphine rose unsteadily to her feet, her left foot having fallen asleep in the proceedings, and bowed. Your wisdom is unmatched, my lord guardian. Do you know the mysteries, daughter? asked the lord guardian. Can you protect yourself from these sorcerers? I know the prayers and the psalms, my lord guardian, said the Primata. I know how to make the holy wards to keep me proof from their magical entreaties and the prayer to reduce their hellspawn artifacts to dust. I know the ritual of holy light to make their souls quail and may call upon the sword of justice to execute them in the name of Tao's wisdom. I fear no evil magic, for I have the power of the book of Tao within my heart. Tell me, daughter, said the Lord Guardian, why do you seek these two with such intensity? Why do you hate spellcasters so much? Primata Delphine pulled herself up to her full height. My Lord Guardian, mages are an affront to the natural order and the wisdom of the Book of Tao. The very presence of magic is foul and unclean, something that no sane person should be involved with. The work of hated Urza and damn Mishra was majorly most foul, and almost destroyed all of us. I will not rest until I put every wizard to the torch, burned every demonic book of spells, and rooted out every vestige of majory, regardless of where it may be found. The Lord Guardian gave the most imperceptible of nods. Your righteousness is to be commended, daughter, and may your holy fire burn bright as you pursue and punish your escaped sorcerers. Primata Delphine retreated, bowing, though not kneeling, three times as she retreated. The messenger, leaning sister Betsy, met her at the door. The Primata closed the door behind her and turned to them sternly. The host have smiled upon your enterprise, said the blind woman without preamble, and for the moment, the Primata thought she meant her meeting with the Lord Guardian. For while one demon is lost to us, another stands revealed. She is the west of us, by the coast of the shielded sea, and she is moving north, slowly. The Primata smiled, and though the miracle worker could not see it, the messenger quailed at the sight of the smile. If I find one, I shall find the other. Come, good sister. We have begun our crusade against unholy magic. It will be glorious. Back in the reception hall, the Lord Guardian said in a languid voice, Read that last part back for me. What she said just before leaving. The recorder straightened his papers, then said, in a level voice, I will not rest until I have put every wizard to the torch, burned every demonic book of spells, and rooted out every vestige of majory, regardless of where it may be found. There was a long pause, then the Lord Guardian gave a hiccuping chuckle. Then he was silent again. Lord Guardian, if I may speak, said the clerk. Of course, my son. Her grace, does she not know? There was another brief silence. Then the Lord Guardian said, The mysteries of the faith are mysteries for good reason, my child. Not all can comprehend their immense grandeur. The Primana knows what she knows, for if she knows less, she would be less effective, and if she knows more, she would be less than useless. I see, Lord Guardian, said the clerk. Thank you, Lord Guardian. There was silence again in the reception hall, broken only by an occasional hiccuping chuckle.